You're listening to Click Here. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. So if you heard last week's episode, you probably noticed we did something a little different. It might have sounded a little like, well, a public radio show. And there's a good reason for that. We created five special Click Here shows that are going out to over 100 public radio stations across the country. And if you miss them, we're going to play all five of them here through the holiday season. It's the same Click Here show about people making and breaking our digital world, but just in a little different format. And today, our show is something we call The Art of Decoding Dictators. We hope you like it. ChatGPT, AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Okay, so, so why are we talking to you today? I have no earthly idea why you would want to talk to me. But if you make me guess, I would imagine it is some combination of being interested in all the horrific and terrifying things that North Korea is doing and being interested in the interesting ways that we go about tracking that. That is exactly right. That is why we want to talk to you. Jeffrey Lewis is an arms control policy expert and the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Project at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And we're going to go back to March of 2022, when North Korea announced one of those terrifying things, a breakthrough in its missile test program. We begin with breaking news. North Korea fired a suspected long-range ballistic missile toward the sea this morning. Violating several UN-issued sanctions. Japanese officials said it flew 1,100 kilometers and fell in Japanese waters. This type of missile is designed to carry nuclear warheads and could reach the United States. People in the non-proliferation community, like Jeffrey, actually have a name for this weapon. They call it the monster missile. This is a missile that can take not just one, but many warheads all the way from North Korea to the United States. Kim wants to put many warheads on a single missile because while the U.S. can defend against a single warhead heading for a U.S. city, it can't fend off lots of them fired at the same time. That's why Kim is so focused on getting this done. He sees nuclear weapons as part of a self-preservation program. He figures countries with these kinds of arsenals just don't get invaded. And there have been reports of this monster missile for years, with lots of conflicting stories on whether the North Koreans would even be able to launch it successfully. And then, on March 24th of last year, the North Koreans said they finally did it. This is from a video they released after the missile launch. They had Kim Jong-un like looking dramatically at his watch, wearing crazy sunglasses. You know, it was this really overproduced video to say that the missile had worked. The video is unintentionally hilarious. Kim Jong-un is wearing a Top Gun-like leather jacket, and he's walking in slow motion. He's flanked by two generals, and an enormous mobile launch vehicle is slowly trailing along behind them, like an obedient attack dog. The video shows the missile powering up, and then, about four minutes in, liftoff. There's smoke, the missile rises into the air, the music swells, and then the camera cuts to Kim and a bunch of generals punching the air and applauding. It's hard to know with a video like this if it's just propaganda or a real threat especially in a country where so few outsiders are allowed to visit. But if Kim indeed succeeded in launching the monster missile, the world needed to know, and fast, which is exactly what Jeffrey Lewis and his team live for. So the moment that video was released, they began poring over it. Yeah, I know, this is so confusing. Does this look right? It's very difficult to verify anything. This is sparking our interest. This doesn't seem like it matches. Jeffrey Lewis's obsession with these kinds of issues runs deep. Before joining the Middlebury Institute, Jeffrey was the director of the Nonproliferation Initiative at the New America Foundation. And he used to work on these issues at the Defense Department. And he also has this podcast. You are listening to the Arms Control Wonk Podcast, a podcast on arms control, disarmament, and nonproliferation. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, a professor at the Middlebury Institute, of international studies at it's the kind of podcast where experts and grad students talk about the secret doings of nuclear states 
which means North Korea comes up a lot. This ended up being f***ing Missile Week. They joke about the great leader's smoking habits. He was smoking again, too. Yeah, yeah, he's back to smoke. And the continuous theme running through it all. We know that North Korea doesn't always tell us the truth. Jeffrey and the team are less focused on figuring out whether Kim has really stopped smoking and more intent on discovering whether Kim really has the nuclear arsenal he claims to have. They want to determine just how close Kim is getting to being able to blow up some part of the world. And it turns out that sometimes North Korea itself accidentally helps them do that. Kim releases things that he wants the world to see, like that monster missile video, and sometimes he reveals things he doesn't intend for anyone to know. When you catch someone in a lie, then you've learned something really interesting about what they care about. You know what they want you to think, and you know what they want you to not know. Like, for example, the way Kim dissembles about a particular part of his anatomy. Well, my favorite thing that North Korea loves to lie about, which they've stopped doing, so I'm a little disappointed, but they always used to adjust the size of Kim Jong-un's ears. (laughs) We would just see image after image when they had made his ears a little bit smaller. It seems Kim wants the world to think he has delicate little ears. His ears look totally normal to me. I I I don't see what the problem is, but, you know... Maybe you should see a therapist about that. (laughs) Jeffrey and his team examined Kim's lies about his ears or his weapons program to get to the truth behind his claims. And they've turned to what might feel like a retro technology for help. Satellites. Tiny, inexpensive earth imaging powerhouses delivering data on demand. That's a promotional video from Planet Labs, one of the hundreds of satellite companies now offering clients snapshots and panoramas of the Earth from a low-Earth orbit. It used to be that satellite imagery was available only to the government, but now there are literally hundreds of satellite companies that sell their images to ordinary people. One of the things that's changed about satellite imagery over the past decade or two is now there is so much of it. And with so much of it, you actually kind of get some choices. You can choose from high-resolution images to make out cars and even individuals, or moderate resolution, so a building shows up, but a car would look like a smudge. But these choices have trade-offs. High-resolution images only give you a picture of a very small area. It is like looking at the Earth through a drinking straw. So you need to know exactly what you're looking for, and exactly where to look. Moderate resolution is a little more forgiving. For example, a satellite company like Planet... They try to take a picture of the whole Earth every day at about three meters in resolution. And so that gives you a ton of coverage. It becomes a kind of time-lapse photography. What you try to do is try to watch all the moderate resolution stuff that you're getting all the time so that you know to say, oh, hey, look, something's interesting happening here. Go take a high-resolution picture. And that's what happened a couple of years ago when Pyongyang released pictures of Kim Jong-un touring a ballistic missile factory. It seemed innocuous enough until one of the people on Jeffrey's team noticed that a map in the background of the picture seemed to suggest that the plant was about to undergo a huge expansion. So they tasked a high-resolution satellite to look for the factory and take some pictures. When we found the place he visited, they had not started the expansion yet. So it was just this tiny, tiny, tiny little facility. But over the course of several months, the satellite images showed North Korea knocking down buildings at the factory and putting up new ones. And that put Jeffrey and his team in the position to tell the world, this expansion is happening. That kind of information helps governments plan for the future. It helps them shape defense strategies and military spending decisions as they wrestle with the unpredictable events regimes like Kim's use to get the world's attention. Which brings us back to last year's missile launch and that propaganda video. To determine if the monster missile really worked, Jeffrey and his team needed to do much more than simply look at satellite images and determine whether a building was getting bigger. Analyzing the launch video required a kind of Ocean's Eleven team approach, with each person bringing to the table some very specific skills. My name is Lisa Levina. I'm also a graduate research assistant here. Stephen De La Fuente. Trisha White. John Ford. Michael Dutzman. You're Ben, right? Yes. And they called you Mr. Computer? (laughs) Walking computer, I think Trisha said. (laughs) Their superpower is microanalysis, the uncanny ability to see those little things, the incremental changes, and then give them meaning. And they specialize. 
Lisa Lavina speaks Korean and models rockets. Trisha White, among other things, finds clues in social media. John Ford has this incredible ability to remember if he's seen something before and then actually place it. Um, something that just came out earlier today to John, Kim Jong-un is sitting at a really big table and he's like, oh, is that in this place? And I'm like, yes, it is. It's, it's because he knows the exact table. He knows what places in North Korea where they would meet to have a certain type of meeting and have a really big table and what those pictures kind of look like. Pretty cool ability. And they're always asking questions like, what is normal? What is expected? What is weird? And they were asking all these questions in an effort to help the world decide whether North Korea had just announced one of the most dangerous developments on the Korean peninsula in decades, or whether it was just another head fake. That's after the break. This is Click Here. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. I'm Dina Templerest. And you're listening to Click Here. And today, we're looking at the creative ways ordinary people are using technology to decode the dangerous claims of shadowy dictators. And on any given day, Jeffrey Lewis and his team at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey are focused on Kim Jong-un's nuclear weapons claims, looking at satellite images of North Korea, something they've been studying for years. And one of the people who is really good at interpreting those images is this guy. Yeah, my name is Ben. Uh, my background is actually a little bit weird in some ways for a lot of people in this field because I come from more of a STEM engineering background uh, than Mueller. Ben Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's Ben Mueller, the so-called human computer. And he's one of the researchers at the Middlebury Institute. Last year, when the monster missile video came out with all its explosive claims, Ben and his colleagues began to look for what were essentially micro-clues. They took the video and began cross-referencing it frame by frame with satellite imagery and a treasure trove of reference material and open source information. A lot of the long-term projects we have is process of we note down a site that we want to pay attention to and we might go back to it and look at what's the new satellite imagery every few weeks. So how do you know what to look for? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question because if you if you don't know what you're looking for and you're just open to whatever is happening you can interpret things that are just normal as, as being wrong. So the team makes a point of looking at regularly updated satellite images over extended periods so they can spot changes over time. Like, let's go back, not just look at it now, let's look at it five years ago, let's look at it ten years ago, let's look at it um, from whatever information we can get available. And that's where, as well, like working together as a team and bouncing ideas off each other, like, does this look weird or is this kind of normal? Like, is this expected or is this unexpected? Is this something that makes sense, or am I just reading into it, right? A lot of that is, is the collaborative part of open source really matters. Jeffrey's team works together, collaborating across their specialties to cross-reference potential clues. And then one day they noticed this random article by a South Korean journalist who thought something was a little fishy about that monster missile launch. This guy, Colin Zwerko, was the first person who said, I, I don't think this is right. Zwerko is a senior correspondent for NK News based in Seoul. And that's music to our ears because that is that is like waving a red flag at a bull. And, and my whole team was like, well, let's check that out. There are tools online that you can use to measure the angle of the sun at a particular time of day and determine which direction the shadow should fall. That's Michael Dutzman, and he kind of specializes in measuring shadows, which can tell you a lot about a satellite image or, for example, a propaganda video. We could compare the direction the shadow would fall at the two different launch times 
and determine how that compared with what was seen in the video. So if North Korea claims to have launched a missile in the morning, you'd expect the shadows to reflect that. And you guessed it, Michael thought something was a little off. The shadows in the video seemed to kind of jump around, almost like in a time-lapsed photography video. And the angle of the sun in the film seemed to keep changing, like it was doctored somehow. I do remember being in the office and Jeffrey slamming his hand on the desk and thinking this was like a really big deal. Is that true? Does he yeah. slam his hand on the desk a lot? Well, occasionally. <laughs> in a good excitement, right? right. Yeah. Why would flickering shadows get Michael and the team excited? Because they would be an indication that Kim wanted them to think something happened in one way when it might have really happened in another. So they started comparing the monster launch propaganda film with satellite imagery taken before it ever happened to see if there was something that they'd missed. Jeffrey called up an image on his computer screen for me. It's a satellite image taken above the same airfield in the monster missile video. You can see all the same buildings. You can see the same fields. The road looks the same. The one big difference is that in this satellite picture taken a week before the launch, there's a huge burn mark on the pavement. And the truck is gone, but there's a, a black kind of smear. It's the kind of burn mark you get after you launch a fiery missile. So it didn't make sense. Why would a satellite picture taken a week before the monster missile test have this black smeared evidence of a launch? This was another one of Jeffrey's table slamming moments. In the moment, I was like, oh my God. The team started going over all its data again. There were those strangely shifting shadows in the propaganda film. There was this evidence of a launch a week prior to the one in that video. And then they noticed that the way the monster missile seemed to be flying in the video was nothing like what the team had expected. Michael Dutzman again. And knowing what we did about the engine and the propellants and everything else, we expected it to accelerate at a certain rate, and it did not. Ex it accelerated slower than that, which was kind of a red flag, which meant that either our model was wrong or there was something wrong with the missile. Jeffrey Lewis said he thinks there's an even simpler explanation. They tested two missiles in March. One that worked and one that didn't. The simplest answer is that they launched the big one on the 16th. They filmed it. Kim Jong-un was there, but it blew up. So they couldn't announce it. So they came back a few days later. They launched a different missile that they were pretty sure would work. In other words, Kim Jong-un had tried to launch the monster missile and it had failed. And then a week later, he launched and filmed a non-monster missile he knew would work. The North Koreans had apparently taken footage of just the monster missile parading around and then its liftoff. And then it mixed it with footage of the successful non-monster missile launch a week later. In order to imply it had worked. And with this careful, creative detective work, Jeffrey and his team were able to help diffuse what could have been a perilous development in the global arms race. Without this, countries may have changed their calculus, a thing you only want to do based on something you are sure is true. But with this analysis, Jeffrey and his team could say with high confidence that the monster missile launch hadn't been successful after all. They had caught Kim in a lie. It's almost like you went and looked at Kim Jong-un and you asked him like, hey, did you eat those brownies? And he says, no, I don't know who did it, but he's got chocolate smeared all over his face. The secret sauce in looking at imagery are the signatures. That's John Lauder. He used to serve as director of the CIA's nonproliferation center. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, great, here's a picture or a video of a missile launcher, but it's all the little things that go with it, like burn marks and the trailers in the background and the vehicles that are in the background help over time to develop a real sense about what's going on. The kinds of investigations Jeffrey and his team do now used to be done in secret by governments. They'd see Soviet missiles moving into Cuba or hundreds of thousands of Russian troops amassing on the Ukrainian border, and then just keep citizens in the dark about what they'd discovered. But, John Lauder says, technology has democratized all of that. And I'm, I'm a believer in those capabilities and what folks like Jeffrey Lewis are doing. The downside is, of course, 
Well, it starts to reveal a bit about how one goes about looking like imagery and helps maybe the North Koreans being a little smarter next time putting together a video that might give something away. And even if North Korea is more clever with its releases in the future, the fact that the monitoring process has been so democratized means that there are many more eyes on Kim. So no matter what he does next, he'll have to fool a lot more people. So while Jeffrey and his team managed to hold the dictator to account from afar, our next story is about a team of investigators who are looking for clues in a much more up-close and personal way. Instead of satellites, their investigative weapon of choice is a screwdriver. And it's helping them reveal secrets about two autocratic regimes. And those secrets could have a dramatic effect on the ongoing war in Ukraine. And just a quick warning here, there are sounds of explosions and gunfire in this story. Let's start with this morning's drone attack on Kyiv. What can you tell us? For more than 18 months now, Ukrainians have been suffering at the hands of Russian attacks, including attacks by drones. These aren't the drones that take pictures at football games. These are drones loaded with weapons, or kamikaze drones designed to simply crash into buildings and blow up. Officials say nine power facilities were damaged. Air defenses are said to have intercepted most of the incoming missiles, but even then, debris must fall somewhere, and it can fall anywhere. When the missiles fall or are shot down, Ukrainian forces go out to retrieve them, and then they pass them off to people like this guy, weapons inspector Damien Spleters. Okay, so we are walking in this room. He takes them into warehouses, and then examines them in great detail. And in front of us is a Shahed-131 that was recovered by Ukrainian forces, and we can see the carcass right there. Damien is leaning over the wreckage of an enemy drone. Its engine is tiny, like lawnmower or moped small, so it's slow-moving and noisy, and they're super easy to shoot down because Ukrainians can hear them coming. Damien is the deputy director of operations at a nonprofit called Conflict Armament Research. So how does somebody become a weapons investigator? What do you start out as? I started as a journalist, actually, um, getting interested in weapons and how they are used and how they get into conflict areas. When he was still a journalist, Damien was writing about the use of Belgian weapons in modern conflicts, things like tracking how Belgian weapons were used in Libya. And that naturally led to trying to identify Belgian arms dealers. And then eventually, maybe inevitably, to conflict armament research. Got hired by them in 2014 as a field investigator to go to Syria and Iraq uh, looking at Islamic State weapons. Conflict armament research works with both governments and companies to piece together how particular weapons end up on a battlefield. In the Hollywood version of what Damien does, he's up against the equivalent of Nicolas Cage in the 2005 movie Lord of War. It's about an arms trader. There are over 550 million firearms in worldwide circulation. That's one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. The only question is, how do we arm the other 11? These are the kinds of guys Damien is up against. And while this movie was loosely based on the life of a Russian arms dealer named Victor Boot... I supplied every army but the Salvation Army. Damien says his piece of the global arms trade is a lot less sexy. This is the Hollywood vision, you know, of how it works. <laughs> but weapon diversion is, is much more mundane than that, you know. So you don't have, like, a single person that will be, like, intent on, on diverting those weapons for those terrorists or whatever. Essentially, Damien isn't hopping on military jets on the trail of the next Victor Boot. Instead, he's collecting data, cataloging and tracing thousands of individual weapons transfers in order to figure out where their components are coming from. Even the tiniest thing, a chip or a semiconductor, can offer volumes of information. 
the way it usually works uh, with the semiconductor industry is that the type of marking you'll have on some chips uh, denotes the week and year of manufacture. And through that information, usually they can find records of, you know, a list of distributors that got the parts. A lot of the time, it's a kind of triangulation analysis. We will identify, you know, the same end users, the same distributors, and then little by little, we'll uncover the acquisition networks that Russia and Iran have been using. And these days, Damien's area of focus is the Russian-Ukrainian war. He's been coming in and out of Ukraine since 2014, performing what amounts to an autopsy on various Russian munitions, from drones to missiles. And that intimacy with the weapons may explain why he has this way of making them sound like a living, breathing thing. Let's put the scale on. Earlier this year, Damien Splitters traveled to Kyiv to get up close and personal with a particular drone, something called a Shahid-131. So this one has not been obliterated and there's no, still in them? No, also on the uh, rubber plug. When Damien dissects grounded drones, he goes through a meticulous process. He photographs them and then traces their components through the global supply chain. He tracks every step those pieces take, from factory to distributor to manufacturer. Okay. And he's been doing this so long that every chip, every battery, every antenna seems to speak to him. Have you seen any number on this uh, engine? On the carburetor number. Okay, let's, let's make a picture of it. Days from now, Damien will have extracted and photographed some 500 different components from the carcass in front of him. And then he and his team will analyze those components and their history in depth. We will, you know, gather as, as much contextual information as we can. So we will ask when the item was recovered and where exactly and in which circumstances and, you know, when and, and how it was brought to the place where we are documenting it now. Their analysis eventually traced some 500 components back to more than 70 manufacturers in 13 different countries. My main interest in looking at weapons is that it functions to me as a physical document. Its whole chain of custody and, you know, all the hands it went through and where it was made and how it arrived there and how it was used and all that. And I think through that, you can then tell a story about the conflict you're looking at, about the war you're looking at. The genius behind what Damien is doing is that if you can trace the components, you might be able to get companies to stop supplying them to the bad guys and maybe even take that weapon off the battlefield. The strategy has worked before. During the war in Syria, he was taking apart Russian missiles, and he discovered that they all used the same satellite navigation module. And that module is made from a specific set of components made by the same specific manufacturers. So imagine if you're able to make just that one module harder to get. That means that if you're able to make an impact on the chains of supply of this very particular set of technology, you will impact four different models of Russian missiles. Fast forward to the war in Ukraine and the drone he's been examining. From, for, from last time we saw it, yeah. Okay. The clearest thing this drone is telling him is that it was made in Iran which means not just that Russia hasn't been telling the truth about where it's getting its weapons, it means Iran has been lying too. Moscow and Tehran have insisted that Iran isn't providing weapons for the war. But here was one of Iran's trademark drones lying on the table right in front of Damien. And if that wasn't enough, Damien and his team discovered something even more surprising. Over 80% of the parts in that Iranian Shahid drone have some sort of link to a U.S. company. And why is that important? Because it means that both drone programs, Russian and Iranian, they are both very dependent on non-domestic components. Translation, while sanctions are supposed to prevent U.S. companies from providing particular technologies to Russia and Iran, Damien has discovered that both Moscow and Tehran have found ways around that and somehow managed to build those drones primarily out of U.S.-made parts. Do we have any idea how all these U.S. components, when they're supposed to be sanctions, and how they end up in an Iranian drone? Uh, the short answer is, is no. Um, there's... This is Dan Gettinger. He founded the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College, and now he's director of publications at the Vertical Flight Society. He's an expert on drones. Um, there are a variety of pathways that 
it appears that Iran has used to source components for its drones. So some of these components go through China, Taiwan, or, or suppliers in third-party countries that may not even know that they are supplying components for Iranian drones. He says some of the components used to build drones are so common, they are often also parts used in TVs, phones, and computers. So it's hard for a manufacturer to know where their chips end up. So that's part of the challenge, just the, the number of pathways that it could take. It's unclear how they eventually get there. That's why Damien says he and his team never single out specific manufacturers in their reports. We know that naming a manufacturer and saying, yeah, it's, it's uh, manufacturer X from the U.S. will not solve your problem. It will not give you more information than you need to shut down Russian acquisition networks. What you need is the what comes after the manufacturer, you know, what distributors were used, what end users it was intended for. It's the cutouts that, they're, that are the problem, correct? It's the cutouts in between. It, it, it happens all at the distribution level. Like once it's left the factory and went through a large distributor and then to a smaller regional one or to an intermediary there in the region or the country, that's usually where the issue was and where, you know, the true intention was kind of veiled. But still, the components do tell Damien and his team something else about Iranian and Russian weapons programs. For example, a lot of the components Damien and his team have found are old. A vast majority of the semiconductors, for example, were produced between 2014 and 2021. And that's before they were put on the sanctions list in February 2022 when the war began. So I think the, the, more, the more we go away from February 2022, the more we're likely to see changes in the type of components, the more we're likely to see, you know, sanctions starting to bite. Valerie Lindsay is the executive director of the Wisconsin Project on Nuclear Arms Control. And she says we shouldn't assume sanctions have failed just because of all those foreign components in Russian and Iranian drones. I think sanctions and export controls really haven't been used to target the program yet. Though the European Union is starting to change that. It's been stepping up bans on the export of drone components to Iran in recent months. So I think there's a lot of room on sort of the sanction side of things. A senior EU official told Axios that the draft list of entities came from intelligence reports provided by Ukraine, which happened to include an analysis of Iranian drones that were captured and disassembled. And while Iran has denied supplying any drones to Russia, clearly, given Damien's work, that isn't true. And that's the thing about physical products like the drones Damien has meticulously tracked. They provide the one thing that's hard to come by in the fog of war, truth. Well, one of the first things that dies in conflict is like the truth. These artifacts have, and they, they hold in them a piece of history, a piece of truth um, that can be extracted if you, if you look at it, you know, long enough and, and, and well enough. The White House announced just this past May that Russia is looking to buy more attack drones from Iran, which might give Damien more weapons to whisper to. This is Click Here. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. So we've told two stories that suggest we should all probably listen to despots and dictators with a skeptical ear, whether they're touting fake missile launches or lying about their weapons of war. But democratic leaders, they often get the benefit of the doubt. They say the new tech they deploy is to keep people safe. But it turns out the temptation to use high-tech surveillance for their own political ends has been too hard to resist which means they end up acting a little more like dictators than they'd like to admit, which is the subject of our last story about holding authority to account. And it takes place in Mexico, where there was a shooting, 
a cover-up, and the unmasking of a secret government agency. It all began in July 2020 after news broke that the Mexican army had killed a dozen civilians in a border town near Texas. Within days, an army press release provided an official version of events. Saying that they were patrolling and they were attacked by a group of 20 civilians, armed civilians, and they responded to the aggression and they killed 12 drug dealers. This is Luis Fernando Garcia. He's a lawyer and the executive director of a digital rights organization in Mexico called R3D. And he said that right after the shooting, victims' families reached out to a local human rights official saying something wasn't right. And they said, hey, my son was killed here. He was not an aggressor or a drug dealer. My son was kidnapped. My son was disappeared. And that might have been the end of it had a video of the shooting not surfaced in a Mexican newspaper. Just a quick warning here, we're going to play part of that video, so you'll hear some gunfire. And the video shows Mexican soldiers opening fire on people in a truck, with no apparent provocation. The footage is grainy and shaky, and looks like it was taken from a soldier's helmet camp. He's sitting behind the mounted gun of a military truck, parked on the side of a dark highway, in a border town called Nuevo Laredo. Another army vehicle drives into the frame and then stops near a pickup truck and soldiers open fire. Then you can hear someone yell. Someone saying, please, please, don't don't shoot, stop shooting, stop shooting, stop shooting, but they don't listen to him. They keep shooting, keep shooting, keep shooting. There's no fire coming back. This is a clear excessive use of force. And then there's this moment where you can see someone in the bed of the truck. They're still moving. And this is when they say, he's alive, he's alive. And here's when they say, kill him, kill him. At that point, the soldiers appear to kill the man. And while the video seems to show that the shooting was unprovoked, that isn't all it revealed. As people examined it frame by frame, Other things emerged. Someone in the back of the truck had their hands tied, and there was also some forensic evidence about some of the victims being shot at close range. The video rocked Mexico. It raised questions about the Army's use of force, and there were calls for an independent investigation. And then this other troubling thing emerged. Luis and his team of investigators discovered sophisticated surveillance software on the phones of human rights activists who had been looking into the killings. The video and the spyware seemed to suggest not just that this was an extrajudicial killing by the Mexican army, but that there was also a high-tech attempt to cover it up. And then came an unexpected twist, courtesy of some local hackers. Mexico's Ministry of National Defense was targeted by a group of hackers known as Guacamaya. The Guacamaya hackers stole reams of classified documents and then released them publicly. It's six terabytes of information, around 40 million documents. Uh, and it's not really easy to navigate them. Journalists were so overwhelmed by the sheer volume, they just stopped digging through it. But Luis and R3D? We didn't. Uh, And this gave us, like, the, the missing key. A missing key that both confirmed their suspicions about the Nuevo Laredo incident and made clear that something much bigger and more ominous was going on. After months of digging through the Guacamaya documents, R3D found a smoking gun proof that the army had not only been involved in citizen surveillance, but had created an entire secret department dedicated to it. And its targets included not just the people trying to get to the bottom of what happened in Nuevo Laredo, but people associated with them. John Scott Railton is a senior investigator at the digital rights group, The Citizen Lab. It's not just the highest profile people, it's their friends, their lovers, their softball coach, people around them who might have access to them, were targeted as well. R3D and Citizen Lab have been investigating unauthorized surveillance in Mexico for years now. Back in 2017, three years before the shooting, they found spyware on the phones not just of human rights activists, but ordinary citizens as well. 
And Mexico's spyware of choice is one you may have heard of, something called Pegasus. It's like a spy in your pocket because it infiltrates your smartphone. It vacuums up your texts, your emails, your phone calls, everything, without you or even your service provider knowing it happened. Journalists, international investigators looking into kidnappings, the families of people killed by drug cartels, they were all targeted. And all the evidence seemed to suggest that one institution had planted it, the Mexican army. Which was worrisome for all the reasons you might expect. It wasn't just because the military was spying on people, but also because in Mexico, the army's reach has been expanding. The army doesn't only control public safety. They're not only the federal police now. They control roads, customs. They build airports, refineries, trains. They have banks. They are really amassing an incredible amount of power. R3D's 2017 report with these revelations caused an uproar. It was a big scandal. It was in the front page of the New York Times. Mexico has long been known as what you might call a spyware early adopter. The Mexican government bought high-tech surveillance products like Pegasus before much of the world even knew spyware existed. And while R3D and Citizen Lab knew that Pegasus had been planted on citizens' phones, they hadn't yet been able to prove decisively who was behind it. And the Mexican president himself, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, denied his administration used spyware at all. Señor Presidente, muchas gracias de nuevo por recibir nuestras preguntas. Soy Luis Fernando García, de la Red en Defensa de los Derechos Digitales. Luis confronted the Mexican president about it during a 2019 press conference, less than a year before that Nuevo Laredo shooting. Ante esta información, ¿podría usted confirmar si el gobierno federal sigue utilizando el malware Pegasus? Could you confirm, he asked the president, if the federal government is continuing to use Pegasus spyware? López Obrador said now that there was a new administration, his administration, the days of Pegasus in Mexico were over. And the president even went a step further, saying he was particularly against the use of spyware because when we were in the opposition, he said, the previous administration used it against us. We haven't purchased Pegasus spyware, he said. And we don't do things like that, he added, as a matter of principle. That was the last administration, the president kept saying, not us. The army denied any involvement as well. And then came the Guacamaya leaks, all those secret military documents. As R3D poured over them, they began to find evidence that confirmed some of their worst suspicions that the president of Mexico and the army had been lying about their use of spyware. Among other things, Luis and his team found contracts and memos that linked the Defense Department to entities known to sell Pegasus in Mexico. Just give me a second and I'll show it to you. He's pulling up one of the smoking guns. Well, the important document is this. Luis shares his screen with me. We're looking at a Ministry of Defense memo, and buried in the small print is the name of a company that Lewis had been tracking for a while, a company known to sell NSO Group's Pegasus. Comercializador Anzua, the same company that we already had strong suspicion that was the intermediary company that was being used by NSO Group to commercialize Pegasus in Mexico. The memo appears to show details of a deal between this company and the Defense Ministry, which was buying what it called a remote information monitoring system, which is just another way to describe, that's right, Pegasus. We have the number of the contract, the date of the contract, the amounts paid for the contract, so that solidify our beliefs that the Army was actively trying to hide the information related uh, to this and lying to different authorities. As Luis and his team continued to dig into those leaked documents, they ran into an acronym they'd never seen before. It appeared to be some kind of military intelligence unit. In Spanish, it's known by the initials CMI. CMI. What was CMI? We didn't know what CMI. You Google CMI, you, will, you are not going to find much or anything. And the more they dug, the more they realized that this was a secret unit inside the army fully formed with all the official bureaucracy of an agency. First, we found 
their logo, which means Centro Militar de Inteligencia, Military Intelligence Center. That's what CMI stands for. Their motto is there, too. It reads, Discretion, Opportunity, and Precision. As Luis read on, he started to understand what this mysterious center does. The objective of the CMI, it says, is to give to the intelligence arm of the chief of staff intelligence products generated from information obtained through closed... Um, through closed systems. Yeah, for closed systems. It's not open source intelligence. This is intercepts of communications. In other words, they were the agency whose job it was to vacuum up communications with spyware technology. The logo and, and the objective and the mission and what they actually do has not been uncovered until now. That was back in the spring. Luis said he can't find any evidence that the unit was formally or legally established. And he thinks he knows why. The same document we were reading together spelled out that CMI needs to remain undercover in order to survive. And there's a really interesting, I'm just going to highlight this. One of the threats that they identify is that the people know that they exist and what they do. Oh, meaning they don't want people to know they exist or what they do. Exactly. Click here reached out to the military secretary at numerous times for comment, and they never got back to us. But it wasn't just the documents that led Luis and his team to conclude that the army was behind the surveillance. There were digital breadcrumbs supporting that, too. Little digital clues that flagged the presence of spyware like NSO's Pegasus. John Scott Railton is one of Citizen Lab's senior investigators. And he said, if you understand the mechanics behind Pegasus, it reveals a lot about who's using it. Companies like NSO have licenses with their products which limit the number of concurrent infections of devices at any given time. That means if a device is infected, for example, on a Tuesday, you can't use that license for another infection at the same time on Tuesday. So what you do is you infect person A on Tuesday, then you wrap up that infection Tuesday evening. That means on Wednesday morning, you can infect someone new with that same license. And then maybe if you want to continue to monitor person A, well, you go back and infect them again. So the count of infections as well as the timing can be really revealing in terms of understanding what's really going on and the motivations behind the surveillance. Which brings us back to that shooting rampage captured in the video and a man named Raimundo Ramos. He was the human rights official that the families reached out to shortly after the killings happened. When R3D and Citizen Lab looked at his phone, they discovered that it had been infected with Pegasus spyware. And they could even tell when it happened, right after that controversial video was released publicly. It was reinfected again when he was talking to the media about the case. And then again, when he was meeting with human rights groups and military officials. Luis had always suspected that the army was behind those infections. The Guacamaya hackers and the leaked documents helped him confirm it. Okay, I'm going to share my screen, okay? The document on Luis's screen is an army memo, which details conversations that activist Raimundo had with journalists. Conversations he was having at the exact moment his phone was secretly infected with Pegasus spyware. These were conversations he had exclusively on encrypted apps. This information could not have been acquired other than with an attack with a tool similar or Pegasus. No, So... This document proves that it was the army who was spying on on Raimundo and was spying on his communications because they wanted to find out his involvement or alleged involvement in the publication of the video that was creating so much headache for the army. So in other words, Luis says he thinks the army used Pegasus to keep tabs on people like Raimundo so they could stay one step ahead of them and continue to cover up what really happened in Nuevo Laredo. Mexico's use of Pegasus spyware on its citizens doesn't make it an outlier. It was just an early adopter. Nearly every week now, digital rights groups report finding spyware on the phones of activists, lawyers, human rights officials, and journalists. Not just in autocratic regimes, but the world over. In dictatorships and democracies alike. This is Click Here. 
Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence headlines of the past week. Hackers associated with Russia's military intelligence apparently are still actively exploiting a vulnerability in Microsoft software to gain access into victims' emails. Companies said that the threat actor known as Fancy Bear, or APT28, has been trying to use the bug since early April 2022. The vulnerability, if it isn't patched, affects all versions of Microsoft Outlook on Windows devices. A successful exploitation of the bug allows hackers to access victims' email correspondence. The popular identity management firm Okta confirmed that a hack they disclosed back in September was actually worse than they originally thought. Okta said that hackers may have stolen data on all the users in Okta's customer support system. The San Francisco-based company said that it didn't, quote, have direct knowledge or evidence that information stolen in the breach is being exploited by hackers, but the company's chief security officer said he couldn't rule that out either. Authorities in Russia's Far East have set up a Telegram chat bot that allows citizens to rat out their neighbors. The bot allows people to anonymously report what authorities call anti-Kremlin propaganda. The bot is the brainchild of Russia's Anti-Terrorism Commission, and it asks questions like, do you know anyone inciting hatred and promoting evil? Is someone hiding weapons at home? This is the second Russian region to launch a bot to help identify people who disagree with the regime. According to a Russian internet freedom organization, Russian citizens filed over 145,000 reports on residents they said were insufficiently supportive of the Kremlin. Next week on a special holiday edition of Click Here, we look at today's digital morality. Governments are quietly tracking phones. Advocacy groups are weaponizing data. And you could be forgiven for not knowing all this is going on. It's uh, a choose-your-own non-compliant data adventure brought to you by big tech and basically allowed because we have no laws to speak of. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. That's next Tuesday on Click Here. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. This week's episode was written and hosted by Dina Temple-Raston and produced by Sean Powers, Will Jarvis, and me, Jade Abdul-Malik. It was edited by Karen Duffin and Lulkowski and fact-checked by Darren Ancrum. It contains original music by Ben Livingston, who also wrote our theme. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and was engineered by John Delore. That's it for this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.